It's a warm spring day in Washington, D.C. It's late March in 1981, and the new president is scheduled to speak at a labor conference at the Washington Hilton Hotel. Crowds of supporters and onlookers have gathered outside to catch a glimpse of the charismatic leader. Amidst the excitement and anticipation, a young man makes his way through the throngs of people. No one has any idea what he has planned. It seemed like a routine event, but it's about to turn into something far from ordinary. The decade was just getting underway, and it was beginning on a shocking moment. A moment that would leave an indelible mark on the presidency of Ronald Reagan. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, we travel back to that harrowing moment in 1981. This is a story of the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt. I was only around four or five years old when this took place. I don't have any memory of it, and not surprisingly, it was never mentioned to me at the time. But I can distinctly remember seeing a news report on this years later. I couldn't believe something like this had taken place. And we need to start this with the man himself. Ronald Reagan, the actor, had successfully parlayed a career in film into politics. He began to support presidential candidates like Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. In 1966, he ran for governor of California, which he won. Reagan then set his eyes on the presidency, which makes sense because he was an actor and the president needed to look good on television. Going into the election of 1980, it was Reagan versus Jimmy Carter, with Reagan eventually winning by a substantial margin. Reagan was sworn in on January 30th, 1981, but just a few months later, with his presidency only just beginning, everything almost came to a horrific and tragic ending. On March 30th, 1981, Reagan was at the Hilton Hotel in D.C., just two miles from the White House. Reagan had been talking to about 5,000 members of the AFL-CIO trade union, Presidents had been coming to the Hilton for years, and this was a pretty routine trip. At 2.27 p.m., Reagan and his Secret Service exit the hotel to a crowd of onlookers, hoping to catch a glimpse of the new president. As the group walks towards Reagan's limousine, six shots rang out. Immediate panic obviously sets in, and we see how lightning fast Secret Service personnel truly are, as in an instant, the attacker is swarmed, and Reagan is rushed into the limo, which immediately peels away. This all seemed to happen in an instant. But what exactly happened? Was the president okay? Who did this? In real time, from the moment the first shot rang out to when the limo pulled away was only about 10 seconds. But it felt like a lifetime. And a lot happened over those 10 seconds. The first shot had hit press secretary Jim Brady. The next one hit a police officer who was watching the presidential group make its way to the limo. This opened up a path to the president who was already being surrounded and protected by his secret service. One of those secret service members is Jerry Parr, the lead agent. 
In less than a second after hearing the first shot, Carr grabs the president and pushes him towards the car, while another Secret Service agent, Tim McCarthy, actually jumps in front of the president. He dove into the line of fire, spreading his body out to protect Reagan. McCarthy, who was not supposed to be on duty that day and with no bulletproof vest, gets struck in the process, but no doubt helps to save the president's life. A truly incredible act. The reaction time of these professionals seems superhuman when you consider the six shots happen in 1.7 seconds. As Parr tells it in an interview with PBS, the Secret Service is trained so well that their muscle memory just takes over when they hear those sounds, and they react off of instinct. The second part of the Secret Service response after the initial reaction is to cover, and Parr covered and protected Reagan as they entered the car. Another one of those shots hits the armored window of the limo, and another one rings out as Reagan is pushed into the limo with the door slammed shut behind him. So, was the president okay? While the limo is speeding off, the president is inside hunched over. Jerry Parr does a sweep of Reagan's body and hair to see if there's any blood, but the president seems okay. Over the radio, the rest of the personnel hears that Rawhide is okay. Rawhide was the codename for President Reagan. The plan is to return to Crown, which is another codename for the White House. While they're in the car, Reagan now seems to be in some pain. Had he broken a rib diving into the car or from par landing on top of him? Then he has some trouble breathing. There were also fears of a possible heart attack. But then Reagan starts coughing up blood. Something obviously isn't right. The plans are changed and instead of the White House, the limo heads to George Washington University Hospital. A few moments ago, the president seemed okay. Now, Parr is calling for a stretcher as soon as they get there. This was actually a life-and-death decision to go to the hospital and not the White House. The instinct was to return to the safety of the White House compared to rushing into a hospital with minimal security. But the decision by Parr may have also ended up saving the president's life. Little does anyone know, but that six and final shot had ricocheted off the back of the limousine and hit Reagan in his side as he dove into the car. The first news reports come out, and word of the president being shot at starts to spread like wildfire. But no one is entirely sure what happened. There aren't cell phone videos circulating on social media, just a few vague reports. CBS News in New York. Shots have been fired at President Reagan, who had just concluded a speech in a Washington hotel to a union meeting. The White House says the president was not hit. My colleague Lem Tucker is on the scene. Lem, you're in Washington. I don't know where. But... More of the early news reports claim that Reagan had not been hit and had luckily escaped a serious situation. Whatever happened, it was still an attack on the president. And this was obviously incredibly serious. Every outlet is reporting on it, even if they weren't sure exactly what to report. Shots were fired 
Apparently at President Reagan, as he was coming out of the Washington Hilton Hotel this afternoon, the president was not hit. He was pushed into his limousine and immediately taken away to safety. However, three persons were hit. We believe they are two Secret Service agents and the president's press secretary, James. This Brady. is also 1981, and the news just didn't spread as fast as it does today. In 1981, we didn't have the onslaught of media and obviously social media that we have now. The concept of 24-hour news was just in its infancy. The cable news network, or CNN, wasn't even a year old, and the concept of round-the-clock news seemed pretty ridiculous. It was the Reagan assassination attempt that helped in the establishment of the new cable news network, as they were able to stay with the story for two straight days. But information regarding the president was minimal. Even at the White House, they had been informed of the situation, but assured the president was all right. Back at George Washington Hospital, Reagan has been rushed in as he's starting to decline. But despite that, and with a deflated lung, Reagan actually walked in under his own power. Now in the hospital, Reagan's blood pressure has severely dropped. It occurs to everyone this is much more serious than they realized. Despite the harrowing condition, Reagan continues to be his affable self, cracking jokes with the staff. Meanwhile, his wife Nancy Reagan has rushed to the hospital, where he reportedly tells her, quote, Honey, I forgot to duck. It turns out the bullet had gone through his side, careened off his ribs, and lodged just an inch from his heart. This is how close we were to a horrible tragedy. The president has to immediately go into surgery. But meanwhile, who did this? While the president was being protected and whisked away, the other Secret Service immediately captured and subdued the attacker. Who exactly was it? And why did they do this? Were they politically motivated or just violent? Well, the reasons were much more bizarre than anyone could have expected. Everything 80s will return after these messages. John Hinckley Jr. was born in 1955 in Oklahoma before moving to Dallas as a young kid. Growing up, his life seemed relatively normal. Hinckley went to college but eventually dropped out of school. He just didn't seem to have any direction in life. He had goals of becoming a songwriter, but grew up with emotional problems for which he was prescribed medication. But what drove him to this terrible act? If you grew up during this time period and remember all of this, you know it gets pretty bizarre. There's the idea that Hinckley may have been influenced by Mark David Chapman, who had just killed John Lennon a few months prior. But Hinckley had two primary obsessions tied together in the movie Taxi Driver. The 1976 film starring Robert De Niro is about Travis Bickle, played by De Niro, who plans to assassinate a presidential candidate. Interestingly, the character of Travis Bickle was based on Arthur Bremer, who shot presidential candidate George Wallace in 1972. Hinckley becomes obsessed with the movie and begins to dress and act like the character of Bickle. 
But the second and primary obsession Hinckley had was with actor Jodie Foster, who also starred in Taxi Driver. Hinckley was infatuated with Foster and constantly stalked and tried to contact and speak to her. In Hinckley's mind, the only way to impress and get the attention of Jodie Foster was by assassinating a president. He had originally targeted President Jimmy Carter and even got relatively close to him. But on March 30th, 1981, his plans came to fruition. Back at the hospital, Reagan has successfully come out of a two-hour surgery, but is in intensive care. Everyone is now realizing how close this was to becoming a truly tragic event. As Reagan tells it in an interview with Larry King, he had lost nearly half the blood in his body, and the people in the hospital had thought they were going to lose him. After the official news gets out, everyone is in an obvious state of shock, remaining glued to their TVs. We were told then that the president had not been hit, apparently on the basis of the fact that people saw him being pushed into the car. Now the White House is saying, as you know, that he was hit, and that is the same report that we have, that it was in the left side of the chest and that his condition is stable. The 53rd Academy Awards are set to take place the night of March 30th, but get postponed after news of the attack spreads around the world. Interestingly, when the Oscars do take place on March 31st, Robert De Niro wins the Best Actor Award for Raging Bull. And he was also nominated for an Academy Award for the role of Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. Despite the harrowing ordeal, Reagan continues to govern. The hospital is turned into a makeshift White House, and the day after surgery, Reagan even signs a piece of legislation while in bed. Reagan apparently at first wasn't aware that anyone else had been injured and finds out all have made it out of surgery. But Jim Brady would, unfortunately, suffer permanent brain damage. Reagan eventually leaves the hospital on April 11th. The amazing thing through the entire ordeal is how well Ronald Reagan handled everything. From the moment he was rushed into hospital to the moment he left, he was still cracking jokes and kept the mood light. He even remarked how upset he was to be cut out of his expensive custom suit before going into surgery. When he got back to the White House, Reagan was still recuperating and wasn't able to go downstairs, so meetings were moved to his upper residence. He clearly felt weak for a while and felt the effects of the attack for years, but managed to continue his presidential duties. Some felt his recovery and ability to perform could take months or even years, but it was more like a few weeks. The trial of John Hinckley Jr. took place in 1982. Charged with 13 offenses, Hinckley was found not guilty by reasons of insanity. He was, however, confined to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington for nearly 35 years. After the assassination attempt, Reagan's popularity soared, with approval ratings reaching nearly 70% in the months following the attack. Despite any political feelings, Many people were inspired by the strength and resolve of the president after the almost tragic event. It was almost like he was living the heroic role of a character he would have played back in his film days. 
For many people who were old enough to remember it, the events of March 1981 harken back to one of the darkest days in American history, November 22nd, 1963. That's the date of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The attack on Reagan was jarring enough, but remember, this was only 18 years after the JFK assassination. It's kind of remarkable to think how close together those two events were. It feels as if the JFK assassination was separated by a larger amount of time. But this just shows how far back the 1980s really are now. To put this in perspective, if you're listening to this episode right around the time it's released, the time difference between now and 1981 is the same as between 1981 and the beginning of the Second World War. The JFK assassination seems so far back to us now, but it really wasn't to those living in 1981. It was still a relatively fresh incident. To put this into further perspective, the time difference between 1981 and the JFK assassination is the same as between when you're listening to this now and when Star Wars Revenge of the Sith came out. For me, going to see that movie really doesn't feel that long ago. So, in 1981, the horrific events in Dallas were still burned in people's minds. I asked my dad about this time differential feeling and the response to the Reagan attack compared to the JFK assassination. He was 17 during the JFK assassination and around 35 during the attempt on Reagan. He said how it felt like no time had occurred between the two events. He knew the events were nearly two decades apart, but in his mind, it felt so much closer. These era-defining moments that have a connection always seem to feel closer together than they actually are. Here's another example. It was almost the same amount of time between the Space Shuttle Columbia and Space Shuttle Challenger disaster as there was between JFK and Reagan. If you have vivid memories of the Challenger explosion in 1986, it may feel like not a lot of time had passed when the Columbia disaster took place in 2003. And there's a reason for this. These era-defining moments create concrete memories in us. These concrete memories are the ones that feel burned in our minds, and you can remember exactly where you were when they happened. They differ from abstract memories, and the National Center for Biotechnology Information says that an event recalled in a more concrete mindset feels subjectively closer. It's just the way our brains categorize such monumental moments. This episode is about more than just an event that could have been so much more tragic. It's about those moments that become placeholders in history. These core memories are how we measure the passage of time, and ultimately, they become bookmarks in our lives. The 1980s were barely underway, and they started on such a dire note. But it was the remarkable bravery of a few people that prevented it from being an entirely different story. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're listening to this episode the day it's released, longtime listeners will know where this is going. 
It's almost exactly 42 years to the day of the Reagan assassination attempt. I swear this is yet another coincidence that happens with this show in that so many monumental 1980s events seem to sync up perfectly with my release date. But if you like what you heard, why not fire up the Flux Capacitor and head back to my earlier episodes? Here are some other shows related to this one for further listening. Speaking of Reagan, I have a show all about Reaganomics, yuppies, and the crazy 1980s economy. And I spoke of CNN and cable TV earlier, and I have a recent episode all about the explosive growth of cable in the 80s. But besides those, there are a ton of other great topics to keep you going for a while. And make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now so new episodes are automatically delivered to your feed. It's free. That's the best price anything can be. And if you're in a position to help the show grow, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. That's the platform to get access to bonus audio content, including things like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. That's where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. So if you want to learn more, you can head over to patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80s or click on the link in the description. But thank you so much for listening and being here with me today. I know there are so many podcasts out there. So the fact you're spending your time on this one with me means the world. So I'm Jamie, this has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. Hold up. 